2: Hi everyone! We're particularly excited because on the 4th of May we're doing Histories of the Unexpected LIVE at the Plymouth Festival of Words. It's at the House Theatre at Plymouth University from 7.30 and it's only £6 or £4.20 for concessions. For more information and tickets go to historyhit.com forward slash unexpected live. So come along and find out
3: about the history of the signature which is all about murder and political power and the fact that Henry VIII was lazy. And about the history of clocks, which is in fact all about the Industrial Revolution and anxiety.
2: And you'll be able to join in too and suggest your own crazy topics. I really want to do the history of shadows. I want to do chickens, dust, cats, hands, gloves... This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He's Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week, it's brilliant. It's the itch. It's the itch, which is actually all about infidelity, divorce and healing wounds. And the Kriegsmarine the german navy believe us okay. or not if you like what you hear please leave us a review on itunes subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends we're on twitter you can follow me at dr sam willis and you can follow
3: me at james daybell and you can follow histories of the unexpected on at unexpected podcast that's spelt p d cst we are proud to be part of the excellent history hit network home of dan snow's history hit and other great shows coming soon
2: and you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months show notes video clips photos of everything we discussed and much much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 32 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the histories of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like... The bacon sandwich. We're going to do this as a three-parter. We're going to do bacon, eggs and bread. This came to us literally half an hour ago when we were sitting having lunch together. And we'll be following the
3: links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of dragons is in fact all to do with 18th century imperial exploration? Or... That the history of the smile is in fact all to do with the French Revolution and some barbaric dentistry.
2: <laughs> well, the man sitting opposite me is the imp of the Industrial Revolution. It's Professor James Daybell. <laughs> the imp of the Industrial Revolution. And the man sitting opposite me is the
3: gatekeeper of the past. Oh, it is Dr. Sam Willis. That's
2: a very, very responsible job. It is. Hmm. Am I up to it? Keep those. I think you are. Just. I think you are. I might get sacked. <laughs> asleep asleep at his post caught smoking together we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past each week one of us takes the lead and this week it's your turn (laughs) it's my turn it's your turn man Um, what have you got for me We are doing, well, we're doing the itch. The history history of of the the itch. It's
3: making me want to scratch just thinking about it.
2: Yeah, I came up with the idea a few weeks ago. We were doing something and I had a slightly itchy jumper and I thought, well, what am I doing here? I bet people have been coping with itches all of their lives. I
3: have been dreading this for a long time. How does one start thinking about the history of the itch. I mean we did the history of the scar a while ago. I really enjoyed that one. The scar was brilliant and it was all about jeweling scars for me, but scars as they heal Ooh, itchy. and they contract are itchy, scabs. So, so scabs. And so I think one of the things I'd be interested in talking about with this is how you historicize the itch, how you recover something that is so kind of transient and so sort of tactile. You know, how does a historian study that? What are the records for it? How do you know about what it was to feel itchy?
2: Well, I think the Um, transience of it is really interesting, isn't it? Because you have an itch and often you scratch it and it goes. What you don't do is sit down and go, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to write down three paragraphs just (laughs) describing describing. how my itch arrived and then how it went. But that doesn't mean it's not significant and affects people's lives. So we
3: can think about it in terms of the senses, in terms of sensation, in terms of feel. We can medicalize it. So we can think about it in terms of how people understand it. We can think about it in terms of disease, all kinds of diseases associated with the itch from sort of venereal disease to scabies. scabies. I mean, if you look at
2: early dictionaries, it's always very helpful. Everyone listen to this. It's really important. If you don't understand where to start the history of something, go to an old dictionary and see what was meant by that term or phrase At a particular time. At at a particular time, because what we often assume what means now is absolutely what it didn't mean in the past. Or, more interestingly, you often find out that the word doesn't even exist and that that word has come into being uh, hundreds of years later. A
3: really good research tip is the Oxford English Dictionary Online, which, if you have a library card at a local UK library, you can go to the Oxford University Press website and you can click on a button and then you just put in your local library card number and it will bring up this wonderful thing for you.
2: The itch is a classic example. because If you put the itch in, I I was looking at a 1708 one the other day, it has a specific meaning, and it actually means scabies. It is, the itch was scabies. So there was an itch, and that's what it was. It was a certain type of skin disease. So where are you going with the itch? Well, looking at the scabies really got me thinking about where else you could look for evidence of the itch. So I'd gone to my dictionary... And I'd found out about scabies, but I thought, okay, well, we consider itching to be much more than that. But I was really interested in the relationship of itching to disease, and then particularly to the depictions of disease in the historical past. So the big question here is how do you draw an itch? Because it's incredibly. Materializing the itch. How do you materialize the itch? And a lot of the time, historians of illness looking at the past, they do look at imagery to help them understand the symptoms of what people were suffering. So the syphilis is what I was thinking of, actually. I thought, okay, let's look at syphilis. And it's often very difficult to do, but that means that unless the symptoms of a disease are actually written down by someone who's interested in the medical aspects of a disease, they can very much go under the radar of historians. Mm. So I started thinking that symptoms of historical diseases have got holes in them. We're missing them because they're difficult to depict and they won't necessarily be described because they're transient and I think as with history so often when you're studying it if you look at the evidence written down by a historian you've got to realise there are holes and gaps in it and it struck me that in terms of disease that seemed to be really very true because of the difficulty of depicting it.
3: And when you're drawing it you're drawing a physical manifestation of it so you're drawing bumps or pustules rather than the actual sensation of itching
2: absolutely and this is the earliest depiction of people with syphilis
3: goodness me so this is a woodcut
2: very early 15th century
3: yep early 15th century woodcut you've got a picture of a bed a female figure naked in bed covered in what looked like bumps and then a male figure sitting on a stool by the side of the bed likewise in underwear covered in what looked like blisters and somebody looks like a, a sort of apothecary or some some yeah. sort of medical figure.
2: I love the way they've drawn the scabs. They've done them as arrows. They just look sharp it's and uncomfortable. Quite. And It's really quite effective, nasty. though, isn't, isn't it? it? Isn't it? When
3: you think about how crude woodcuts are yeah. at this period.
2: But what you can't get there is the sense of just how horrific syphilis actually was. So oh, Where are we going? Anyway, let's look at this one.
3: Oh, my gosh. So
2: A much more detailed 19th century medical drawing of the effects of syphilis on the face
3: so basically you have a pencil sketch of somebody and then what looks like just sort of savage scarring black sort of charring across the face which is obviously the syphilis eating into the
2: yeah i mean it almost looks like the face snake skin the multi-layers of the scabs that the, would itch oh you're not wrong that My would itch. Word. so this is one of the distinctive things of syphilis it attacks the bridge of the nose yeah. and the teeth uh, and so it was a very visual problem and they actually had these, you can see these uh, can in museums. So that's a, artificial a nose. syphilis nose guard. It is a syphilis nose guard. So if your nose is falling off because you've got syphilis, you'd wear these as an artificial nose. Right. Now, one of the really interesting things about this is the earliest depiction of it. I love things like this, the earliest depiction. This is the earliest known image of any description of someone with syphilis. And it's from 4th fourth century fourth century
3: Peru Peru. Gosh, so what we have is a tiny little carved figure that looks like a mother and baby on her knee. And you'll notice a bridge
2: of the nose is gone right. very clearly and there are dental deformities. Right. And that is now widely accepted to be... Accepted by anthropologists
3: to yeah, be a the, de- the early depiction. De-
2: depiction of syphilis. So I think we might talk about itching in public as well. You know, are you allowed to itch? The point is... Scratching. Scratching things. and itching. Yeah. Is once people associated syphilis with sex... Yeah the depictions of people with syphilis suddenly become much more moral in tone and there are always lessons associated with it, mm. with the poor person who's actually suffering There's from syphilis. Morality of There, of there the are issues, issues yeah. of
3: morality involved. Thinking about people itching in public is interesting. When was it seen as impolite mm. to itch in public like that? I have no idea, but I'm starting to think about, you know, along those lines of sort of, you know, a history of manners and a history of politeness. yeah. If you think about how rustic characters would be depicted in, say, Shakespeare, and you'd imagine them sort of, you know...
2: Scratching and itching. Scratching Their noses and and
3: flea-ridden bodies. Whereas, you know, you'd contrast that with a sort of more court-like setting where people would be much more upright. And
2: I wonder if it mattered how obvious it was where your itch was coming from. So if everyone had sort of scratchy woolen clothes, it was like, yeah. oh, that's completely yeah. acceptable. He's just got a bit of or trouble. Or where you scratch. Or where you scratch. The
3: scratching one's nose is probably fine, but scratching one's ass yeah. probably <laughs> probably probably isn't all yeah, balls in front of the queen. You yes.
2: might suspect that you have syphilis. Yes. So you have to kind of control yourself. So otherwise, you reveal the truth about yourself. It's mm. ah, the itch is a window into truth. Itch is a window. <laughs> yes,
3: yes. <laughs> the, the itch is a window into the soul yeah. and depicts your inner morality.
2: It does, doesn't it? There's no escaping
3: the itch. No, the itch is everywhere. I want to move briefly from the sort of visual depictions that you've got here to the literary survival. So they're actually describing it. And I think if we looked at our dictionary definition, you know, it would take us to a 1780 Was it 1708 or 1718? 1708. 1708. Ten years later, the publication of a little tract called A Short Account of the Itch, <laughs> Inveterate Itching Humours, Scabbiness and Leprosy, plainly describing their symptoms, nature, original cause and true care, and as also the imminent danger of those afflicted with such defilements of the skin ruin of run, of falling into the palsy, etc. I love this. This
2: I I see parallels between us researching the itch and some doctor in the mid-17th century also researching the itch. It starts, chapter one, the itch
3: is a filthy distemper infesting the external parts of the body universally, but more particularly the joints and between the fingers commonly with pustulous eruptions raised upon the skin scarf skin by almost unavoidable scratching, occasioned through violent itching of the parts. From these pustulous eruptions or little bladders, when broke, there issues a thin, Crystalline humor or liquid, which is touching any other part not yet infected, soon causes incessant itching, and upon scratching, more bladders to arise. So, we've got there a really, you know, quite a sort of vivid and it goes on for pages and pages and pages from quite a removed
2: medical perspective, though. It's not someone going. I couldn't sleep all night. No. Again, listeners, go and check John Evelyn's diaries or Samuel Peach's diaries. (laughs) There's a very
3: good collection of early modern diaries by Ralph Holbrook, professor at Reading University, called English Family Life, which is full of extracts from diaries. And I bet, if you
2: mind that you would find descriptions. Um, well, and what was interesting at the beginning of that as well is that it was applicable to so many things. It was leprosy, the scabs and various stuff. Yeah, but in, yeah. in that respect, the itch is a bit like having a temperature. Yeah. You can have a temperature because you've got syphilis or you can have a temperature because you've got the flu. It's a sign that there's something wrong. And actually that kind of reminds me of what was going on with the syphilis thing because it's known as the great imitator because it had a lot of symptoms which are widely applicable. And I think the itch is one of those. And I, I shouldn't think there are that many, other. Who knows? So, widely applicable symptoms, which can be a sign of all sorts of things. Sweating. 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 Yeah, we don't sweat, haven't we? Temperature. Blotching. Mm. I imagine. Uh, dizziness. We need a
3: doctor here. We do. To tell us this. Yeah. I've got another example here from the um, natural and political observations mentioned in a following index, the famous sort of bills of mortality by John Gaunt, which is published in 1662, records various sort of things that people were dying of in the mid-17th century. And it's partly to sort of, you know, look at the, the, the impact of the plague. And he records in one particular year an incidence of several residents dying of lethargy um, and a dozen or so who expired from grief. 22 who were lost to lunatics and basically went mad. And a single fatality from the itch. Oh, death by the so itch. death by the itch. How horrendous. Which is uh,
2: terrible. Yeah. How do you think
0: that happened? Did he scratch himself, scratch or himself, himself so badly scratched that he
3: then bled to death? Well, I imagine he basically died of...
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
3: Syphilis.
2: Yeah, hard Um, time.
3: I want to take us in a different direction and think of the itch more metaphorically. Mm. And if we think about the itch as something that is irresistible, something that is to do with temptation, you know, somebody has that itch that they have to scratch. And I'm going to relate this to news and the rise of news. And I've worked on news in the sort of late 15th through to the 18th century. And it struck me when thinking about this, how to sort of, you know, take it down a different route. I thought about a quote from a really good article on the manuscript transmission of 17th century news by a historian called Ian Atherton. The quote that he starts it with is that itch-grown disease, uh, which is all about news. And this comes from a tract by John Cooper in 1667. You cannot imagine to what a disease the itch of news is grown. So it's using this kind of medical analogy that people are sort of almost infected with news. You know, it's something that they can't resist. I love that. And what it describes here is the kind of explosion in news media that we have. If you think about the way in which news travels and news operates, you know, with the rise of literacy, with the rise of the written word in manuscript, so 16th century and beyond, we've got this sort of this move from oral cultures into written cultures, although we can't sort of draw strict distinctions. But certainly by something like the 1580s, what you see is an explosion in news media in all forms, in rise of manuscript depictions of news, particularly the rise of the newsletter. In the early 17th century and into the Civil War period, 1640s, you've got the explosion of you know, like little news pamphlets which lead to the development of the newspaper. All of this is connected with the political scene of the time. And people are really, really concerned. When we're not here just talking about the elites who are in the capital and interested with what is going on, but we've actually got this... Coming out into the provinces in an English context. I mean, and you can see this throughout Europe as well at the time. But it's, you know, it, it's interesting that analogy, what
2: is it about news that people are itching to know? But that's all linked with how social media works and is used by people now. Yes, absolutely. And one of the key, key things is following latest developments yeah. as they come out, you yeah. know, whether it's on Twitter with personal first hand experiences. I love that idea. And I think that's first started to get answered in the 70s with 24 hour news channels. Yeah. And that yeah. must have been an extraordinary change to having a prescribed time where you could satisfy your itch for news you would wait for the newspaper to arrive and then you'd sit down and that was it and
3: you'd digest it and you'd
2: you'd get your fix basically
3: you'd get your fix but now it you are saturated with it and so many different channels all of which sort of interact with each other in really interesting ways. I mean it's incredibly difficult to be a politically engaged social citizen nowadays because you are bombarded in all kinds of ways, which is why a history degree is actually so important, because it is actually fundamentally training you to be a socially aware citizen, able to vote in a democratic society. You're able to sift evidence to wade through things, you know, bewilderingly complex.
2: I I do take your point, but it's also much more difficult to do that now. Remember you and I talking about Brexit when that was was happening, and we both found it almost impossible to actually get decent argument, decent Decent evidence to to allow us to make up our own minds. It seemed to have been, well, it was just so impenetrable, a lot of the arguments they were putting in.
3: Well, and so much of the debate was so kind of contaminated and people had very, very strong feelings. It was very polemical and it was really hard to get at the economic facts behind it you know, any sort of decent analysis. You know, I regularly listen to the Today programme on Radio 4 and there was a really sustained effort to make a sort of really quality debate. But I still didn't think that you got to the bottom of the problem Mm -hmm. at all, particularly the way in which the people who were for the Leave campaign were dealing in debate, you know, just this sort of long debate and then suddenly somebody at the end would just throw in a soundbite, oh, nobody believes people with opinions anymore, Mm -hmm. or something like, nobody
2: believes experts, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you kind of think, what? what Nobody believes experts. What are we coming to? The interesting thing about those, if you link that back to the itch for news that we were talking about, is that you might suspect or hope that the opposite of that would be the case. Because yep. there is yep. this constant drive and itch for news and for people wanting to be informed and also the ability to inform people all the time, you'd assume the opposite would be the case. Yep. That actually, at the click of my fingers, the press of my phone, I'd be able to get the fact on oh, my fingers. But you couldn't. All we could get was arguments yep. um, rows where the facts were completely lost.
3: And also, I mean, the power of the news media, the big companies that control it, Murdoch, you know, is incredible. I mean, one of the things I do when I wake up in the morning, I open up my iPhone and I flick across to the news channels. And it's interesting the kinds of stories that the algorithms are picking up. Mm-hmm. And they're often highly sensational. You know, they're picking up whether Kim Kardashian has been mugged in a, you know, in a Paris hotel frightening though that may be, you know, it's not for me what I'm interested in. And I link through to the Telegraph and the Guardian at the same time, so you get a balanced view. But it's already being skewed for you in a particular way, with mm-hmm. a particular slant, and the difficult thing is actually reading across that.
2: I, mean, I think that's the point, is everyone has a slightly different I Have itch, a different slant, yeah. And there are people out there trying to satisfy it in different yes, ways. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I suppose it makes you more aware of yourself, doesn't it? Yeah. Knowing exactly what you want when you have so many choices out there. I'm going to take the itch in a different way. The <laughs> seven-year itch. OK. The itch is all about infidelity
3: and divorce, temptation. So, do you scratch you know, the, or do you not scratch? Do you not, and so the idea that the seven-year itch is all about the famous sort of Marilyn Monroe film from the 50s, you know, it get to that point in your marriage where there is temptation and, you know, you either stay with somebody or you leave. And the incidence of divorce after that period is much higher. Incidentally, so is the incidence of STDs. Hmm. People are having, you know, sex outside of marriage and unprotected and picking up diseases. But the history of divorce is a really fascinating and interesting history and relatively modern for much of the millennia most people were not able to divorce you could annul marriage on certain grounds such as bigamy incest that that kind of thing if somebody were mad but effectively the only people who could really get divorces for much of period, somebody like Henry VIII. But you think about all the trouble that Henry VIII had to go through in order to have the divorce pushed through and the massive implications that there were. Or if you were a peer, you could have a private member's bill put through Parliament. But for most people, this just wasn't the case. I mean, marriage was a sacrament. So within the Catholic Church, at least, you know, it was a sin do that. If we look at this from a female perspective, for much of history, women were really subordinated by this and ended up living in disastrous marriages that they were unable to get out of, and violent, violent marriages. And you could give a catalogue of examples. I've got a couple of really good ones. Um, Elizabeth, Duchess of Norfolk, uh, married to one of Henry VIII's most closest and most powerful noblemen, the Duke of Norfolk, who basically kept a mistress we have letters from this woman Elizabeth Duchess of Norfolk to Thomas Cromwell you know basically describing her plight and her husband has basically kept her locked in a tower he's kept a mistress the mistress and her sort of female companions have basically beaten her up hmm. you know they've described pinning her down scratching her breasts until she bleeds and she's pleading for Cromwell to intervene And this is a time when the state does not intervene in personal matters like that. Or one of the earliest cases that I've seen for divorce, which was a test case that went before the master of the court of requests, Julius Caesar, is a case of a woman called Elizabeth Bourne, who's a real sort of favourite research topic of mine. Wonderful collection of materials survive uh, from her. And she was a ward of court, which basically meant her marriage was bought. She was bought and she was married off to a real wastrel, real nasty piece of work. It's called Anthony Bourne, whose father was high up in government of Mary the First. And we have a series of letters describing how she's been treated by this husband. And there is a detailed track that describes her plight. And her husband is a real character. When his own father died, he kicked his mother out of the house. He turned up into Oxford and beat people up He and his followers attacked a man and left him for dead in a puddle. And the descriptions that Elizabeth Bourne gives are of him trying to take away her children from her, sending a man burnt in the hand, so effectively a criminal, to come and blow up her house. He said that basically unless she handed over money that she received as part of her inheritance he would peel the skin off her back with a knife Whoa. so we're talking about a history in a period pre-divorce a period that is incredibly difficult yeah. for, for women and it's not until we get to 1857 with the matrimonial causes act that basically allows ordinary people to divorce but then again it's slanted against women it's not until a private member's bill in 1923 that it made it much easier for women to petition for divorce. And there's a lot of debate in House of Commons, which you can follow through Hansard. And you can see male politicians, because this is a period before you know women could sit in Parliament, way before the female vote. And there is a real concern with the plight of women in these violent marriages. So the itch, you know, the itch is connected to infidelity. Yep. It's connected to... The History of Divorce. Yeah. Uh, brilliant work by Lawrence Stone. Two magnificent books, The Road to Divorce and Broken Lives, which if anyone's interested in that, they are a really good starting place.
2: Well, I'm just going to finish this off. We've talked so far about people kind of getting an itch or getting the itch by accident or not on purpose, but um, there's obviously the history of giving people an itch, the history of itching powder. and The history and, of practical jokes. And of the history of practical jokes. But um, before we even mention that, we weaponized itching powder in the Second World War. True fact. We s- w- we made it in vast quantities and we smuggled it out and got it into Germany where it was sewn into the uniform of American officers. No way. American soldiers, yeah. The Kriegsmarine, why? the Kriegsmarine in the navy was particularly badly hit. There was an appalling outbreak of dermatitis. Why? Because it completely ruined This is really powerful stuff. No, but why would we do it? Would it affect the the ability of people to fight? and to make them all ill. I mean, it was a way of poisoning the enemy, essentially. And um, they, they had a huge outbreak of dermatitis and it really, really affected these, and especially being trapped on a submarine.
3: Oh, without
2: calamine lotion (laughs) there's no access to that let's leave it there ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for listening and do get in touch with us with your histories of the itch I want to know all the creepy stuff you're going to come up with I can't wait
3: the history of the itch
2: don't forget you are the third and most important member of this podcast we really want you to get in touch so do so that's all for now thank you bye 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 If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter.